talk a lot here at Grace about discipleship, and discipleship happens in a lot of different ways. It can happen within a family as we're intentional about doing a family devotion, uh, leading our kids uh, to scripture. It can happen in a, a class or in a group. It can happen in your K group on Wednesday or Sunday night, Wednesday, uh, Thursday night. Discipleship happens in a lot of ways. One of the toughest areas where people struggle in this area of discipleship is really in a smaller group of people, uh, taking scripture and opening it up in a group of two or three and really just sharing your life with people. And uh, discipleship is an incredible thing, and truthfully, not very many of us in this room were ever taken under somebody's wing and said, let me just teach you the Bible. Let me just show you what God can do through his word and teach you through his word. And I think it's something that uh, our elders and our church is really, we're really passionate about seeing that happen. And I, I hope that uh, as maybe you, Roy puts up the chart a lot about the different growth areas. And when you get to like uh, somebody who's an, a parent, a spiritual parent, they're bringing along somebody else to share their faith and their life with. And I hope that you won't think that, as I talked about last week, that that's maybe too many levels above you. You're not quite there yet. And you'll jump in and you'll do that. And so anyway, I want to give, I like to give away different things I find that I feel like are good tools. And this is one that I think is a really nice tool. It's called the Disciples Bible. And it's a really uh, helpful tool for just uh, helping other people see scripture and understand scripture and just opening God's word together. And so as you see on the, on the slide, on the, if, if you have a bulletin with a little number one on it uh, that's circled, that, this is your Bible today. So don't, don't be embarrassed. Raise your hand. And if you're not here with the number one, I've numbered them two, three, four, five, a bunch of other ones. So, yeah, what number do you have? Two. So does anybody have one? Where? All right. Who is that? I can't see it. Oh, Seth. Seth Cloud. All right. Oh, sorry. I got a consolation prize for you later, Mr. Black. All right. So, um, Mitch, do you mind uh, just running that over back to Seth? Thanks, man. Appreciate it. It's a, it's a great, great uh, tool to use for discipleship. And there's so many great things out there. Um, the, one of the main ways that God uses to disciple us is through the proclamation, the declaring of his word. And that's why we're spending a year or more in the book of Mark. Because what better to learn about being a disciple than from Jesus himself. And through the words of scripture, through seeing Jesus, watching him. And so we're back in Mark chapter 9 today. And we're going to be looking at a very, very interesting story. If you didn't grow up in church, if you're not that familiar with the Bible... Today might seem uh, like a little bit strange kind of a story for you, but for those who grew up in church, I'm sure you've heard this many times, and maybe the power of it may have been lost on you because you have heard it so many times. So I hope today you'll hear it and see it in a fresh way. So we're in Mark chapter 9, and we're going to read verses 1 through 13. And he said to them, Jesus said to them, Truly I say to you, there are some standing here who will not taste death, until they see the kingdom of God after it has come with power. And after six days, Jesus took with him Peter and James and John and led them up a high mountain by themselves. And he was transfigured before them, and his clothes became radiant, intensely white, as no one on earth could bleach them. And there appeared to them Elijah with Moses, and they were talking with Jesus. And Peter said to Jesus, Rabbi, it is good that we are here. Let us make three tents, one for you and one for Moses and one for Elijah. For he did not know what to say, for they were terrified. 
and a cloud overshadowed them, and a voice came down out of the clouds, This is my beloved son, listen to him. And suddenly, looking around, they no longer saw anyone with them but Jesus only. And as they were coming down the mountain, he charged them to tell no one what they had seen until the Son of Man had been risen from the dead. So they kept this matter to themselves, questioning what this rising from the dead might mean. Verse 11, and they asked him, why do the scribes say that first Elijah must come? And he said to them, Elijah does come first to restore all things. And how is it written of the Son of Man that he should suffer many things and be treated with contempt? But I tell you that Elijah has come, and they did to him whatever they pleased as it was written of him. Let's pray and we'll look at this passage. Father God, we thank you for your word. God, we would be lost in this world without it. We would not be able to determine who you were, what you love, what you like, what you desire, what your will is. And we would like any kind of purpose or direction and meaning. And God, we thank you that you preserved this story, this narrative, and the entire Bible, the gospel, so we can know who you are and how you lived your life and ultimately how you gave your life for us and rose again, God. And I pray today that we will be moved and changed by this passage of Scripture. We pray in Jesus' name, amen. Back when I was in college, I worked at Hibbett's Sporting Goods. Many of you are familiar with Hibbett's. There's one here in town. There's, there's probably roughly over 500 locations of Hibbett's. And I, when I was in college, it was one quiet morning in the mall, Eastgate Mall in Chattanooga, which no longer exists. And I was, it was just me and another employee in the store and it, there was not a lot going on, but uh, a guy walked into the store and began to browse around. And we were told, you know, trained within so many minutes or so many seconds, I can't remember, I need, we were to approach customers and check with them, see if they needed anything and help them out and so on. So I approached this gentleman, and right off the bat, it just seemed a little off. It seemed a little weird the way that he was acting, but not super weird, but just enough to kind of like, just something seems odd here. And so anyway, he began to try on some shoes. I brought him shoes out, and he was asking all kinds of questions about the shoes. And, uh, you know, fortunately, I knew some of the answers, some of the stuff I got confused because, you know, I'm a college student. I don't really know all the technical specs on, a, on, a, on every shoe on the shelf, but I did the best I could. And then uh, ultimately, he ended up in the dressing room, and we had a policy. You could only take three items in. I noticed he took four. He only came out with three. I confronted him on that. I said, sir, uh, you had four items. And he said, oh, the other one's in inside the dressing room. And went in, and it was there. Anyway, he made a small purchase and left the store. Uh, just suspicious, but nothing, you know, too, too rattling there about the whole incident. Well, a few days later, I found out from my manager that the guy who had come in was a mystery shopper. And not only a mystery shopper, this guy was the vice president of merchandise for the entire Hibbett company. He was out of Birmingham. He came to our little store as a mystery shopper to see how we would do in our interactions with him. And so things were not what they seemed to be when this guy appeared to be pretty much a clueless customer. And in turn, he was one of the top, most powerful guys in the entire company. And I thought of the story as I was reading this passage of Scripture because clearly there was something unique about Jesus. 
Obviously, people weren't doing miracles like this during the first century, just like they don't during the 21st century. But looks can be deceiving, and what Jesus, one might look at Jesus and just see an ordinary fellow, they might look at from his appearance and just think he just likes like any other first century Jew at the time. Nothing could be further from the truth. Scripture tells us that Jesus was quite unique. Let me just read you and refer to some of the scriptures that talk about Jesus and his who he really was. John 1.14 says the word, and that the word there, that's the word logos in Greek, which means that Jesus was from, from history, from the beginning, everything, God, he was God. He was God from the beginning, God creator, God sustainer. The word became flesh and he dwelled among us, just people. Colossians 2.9, the fullness of deity came in a human body. Philippians 2.6 and 7, God emptied himself and assumed the form of a slave, taking on the likeness of men. He emptied himself of that glory, the, the, the obvious glory of looking and seeing this was God. He emptied himself of that to come to earth for God's glory and on our behalf. And so this event we look at today and the one we just read, despite the outward appearances, Jesus was no more normal man. And this is more, never more obvious than in this passage of that transfiguration. Look, as you, if somebody asks you what were some of Jesus' most outstanding, amazing miracles, oftentimes we would list this, we might not even think of this as being a miracle, but apart from the resurrection, actually this was the greatest miracle because this was Jesus displaying his glory, the glory of him being God. And I really feel primarily this was for his disciples, although obviously we benefit from it many, many, many years later. Let's think about what happened in chapter 8. In chapter 8, the disciples have finally gotten to the point where they know that Jesus is the Messiah. Peter said, you're the Messiah, the Son of God. Huge, huge step forward in their understanding. Still not quite there yet on the Son of God thing, but they definitely understand that Jesus is the anointed one. And what does Jesus do next? He predicts his death. So, Peter recognizes him as the Messiah, and of all things, Jesus says, yes, but now I'm going to die. And what did Peter do? He said, no, that's not going to happen, right? And then Jesus said, get behind me, Satan. Get behind me, Satan. Peter, don't. This is my mission. This is my purpose. And so after he says that he's going to die, the next thing he says is, now if you want to be my disciple, if you want to follow after me, What do you need to do? We talked about this last week. You need to take up your cross. You need to deny yourself. You need to follow me. And the disciples are sitting there going, okay, if our master Jesus says he's going to die on a cross, and now he says that we're going to take up our cross and follow, that doesn't really look like what we signed up for, right? This is more than we intended it to be. We don't get it. We don't get it at all. The disciples part in the story of God is incredible. They are the ones who are going to set the world on fire with the good news of Jesus and the resurrected Savior. So I feel confident that this story is positioned here for the very reasons that Jesus wants them to see, to know, to have a greater understanding of who he was. And so 
if they're going to deny themselves and take up their cross and follow, if they're going to sacrifice their life, if suffering was inevitable for them, they needed to be prepared. And Jesus, which is unique in Jesus' ministry, he moves their faith to sight. Jesus is always saying, blessed are those who, who believe without seeing, and, and blessed are you because you believe and you trusted. Constantly, Jesus is reinforcing the value and the need of faith, but here, he is unique in his approach that he actually invites them in and allows their faith to become sight. And I think the reason why is he knew they needed this extra strength for the road ahead, the difficulty that laid in front of them, and to increase their understanding and help them fully comprehend because it's easy looking back on this, saying, I don't get it. I don't understand why they took so long to figure this out. But you got to put yourself in their shoes. I mean, we would be doing the same things if all our expectation was one thing, and then the Messiah comes and he says something completely 180 degrees opposite is going to happen, that just is going to blow every framework and category we have of what the Messiah was to be. And so Jesus tells them in verse 1, he's just, remember there's no chapter and verse breaks in scripture as it's being written. This just flows right in together. And so he said, I'm going to die, take up your cross, follow me. What does a man can give in exchange for his soul? The soul is eternal. The next thing he says is, truly I say to you, some of you standing right here, will not taste death until they see the kingdom of God after it has come with power. They will see the kingdom of God come with power. Now before we talk about what that means, I think it's important that we deal again with this idea of what the kingdom of God is because that's an expression that's used so often throughout the Gospels. But the average Christian, if you say, what's the kingdom of God? You know what they're going to go? They're going to go, well, that's that place up there I go after I die. And it's a very limited understanding most Christians have of what the kingdom of God is all about. It's such a big theme for Jesus. It's used 126 times in the Gospels. And the kingdom is the story of the Bible, and the story of the kingdom really are the same thing. The Bible is the story of the kingdom. And what is that? It's God's purpose for the world to save those who are his people and renew the world for those people that he saves. Let me say that again. God's purpose for the world is to save a people for himself and renew the world for that people. And that's why the kingdom coming is called good news because it's great news. God is gathering together a people and he's going to renew and, and, and redeem the world and he's going to habitate with his people forever and ever and ever. So, what a great news is the king, Jesus, is coming and he's building a king, kingdom. He's inviting people into his kingdom. So broadly speaking, the kingdom of God is the rule of an eternal sovereign God over the entire universe. The rule of a sovereign God over the entire universe. Then more narrowly focused, the kingdom of God is the spiritual rule in our hearts and lives when we submit willingly to God's authority. When we submit to God's authority we submit to him being the ruler, the king, and we're a servant, we're a subject in that kingdom. So those who defy God's authority, I don't need you, God, I'm living life myself, those people who refuse to submit to him are not part of God's kingdom. Those people are not his kingdom people. So in contrast, those who acknowledge the lordship of Christ and gladly surrender to God's rule, they're part of God's kingdom. They're part of God's kingdom. 
So God's kingdom, the kingdom of God, is God's reign, God's sovereignty, and Christ's lordship. And Christ being the king, he's the Lord, he rules. So God's sovereignty, which means God, think about it in the terms of the first century, a king had a domain and he ruled, and all those who were in his domain obeyed him because he was in charge. That's sovereignty. He was sovereign. And so God's sovereignty is, a, a, we, we like that when things work together and we look back and say, wow, I can really see God's hand. God was at work in that, in that situation. Think about it. Think about maybe a job that you, uh, you got one time. Like you just were in the right place at the right time and it just clicked and worked out and, and you're at where you are today and you look back and you say, wow, that I could have never scripted that any better. God's hand was clearly evident in that process. We say that kind of thing all the time. I don't know about you guys, but I look at my wife and how that we're married, and I look back and think, wow, if the circumstances and situations hadn't lined up exactly the way they did, we would have never been together. That couldn't have been an accident. God's hand, God's sovereignty was in that. Praise God for that, right? So we like God's sovereignty when it all comes together easy, and it works out, and the situations are good. But what about when the situations are not so great and grand. What happens, what, how we deal with God's sovereignty when things don't always work out the way that we think they should? You know, I, I think about the, the, the issue of sin. If God is sovereign and he's the ruler of all creation and he's over all things, then how does sin happen? How, why does God permit that? He's ruling here. Why do people sin? Why do they defy God's sovereignty? Why do they do what they want to do? Well, two things, super important. Scripture clearly teaches that God is sovereign, he's powerful, and he's good. He's sovereign, he's powerful, and he's good. But Scripture also teaches clearly that evil exists and we bear moral responsibility for it. That sin and evil exist in this world. We don't, nobody needs to tell us that. We know that. And we are responsible for it. And so you look at those two truths and you think, well, I see flaws in that logic, right? I don't see how that always fits together. And I say, exactly. You know why? Because God's ways are not our ways. Our ways are not God's ways. We don't know how God operates and works and how, his, how he can be God and these things can come to, into fruition the way that they do. And here's what people tend to do. Because they're, they're, they don't like this tension that exists, and so they err one way or the other, and they make uh, flaws in their understanding of these things because they deny or water down the existence of one or the other or how essential one of, these other, one or the other are. And you see it all the time. You see people who are like, sovereignty God, I hate that, I don't like that, it doesn't make sense. Free will, free will, free will. And you got um, uh, people over here saying, no, God's sovereign, he's in control. Nobody has any kind of will. And the truth is, Scripture says we bear moral responsibility for the choices and decisions we make, but God is completely sovereign. And so how do we believe and, just, and, and figure out that God can be go, both good and sovereign in the face of just evil that exists and extreme suffering in the world? How do we justify that? Because it's important that we are trained and understand biblically because this is so critical to everything about life because the truth is either you're coming out of a crisis today out of a tough situation today maybe you're right in the 
in the middle of a, of a tough situation today, or maybe you're sitting here and thinking today's pretty good, I promise you something's coming, okay? Something's coming because living in a broken world, in a broken body with sinners, something will happen and something will take place in your life. And you'll have to run it through some grid to make sense of it, and I hope you'll run it through Scripture. And not taking your favorite Scripture or two, but realizing that you have to take the entire counsel of God and see God's character, his goodness, his greatness. And so what do you do in a situation where, let's say, abuse happens? There's abuse. I mean, I think one of the biggest revelations when I, when I became pastor six or seven years ago and I was beginning to meet with people and people were more authentic with me was this idea of, I mean, this, this, this reality that how many people had been abused as a child. How many people had been abused in a, in a very traumatic, difficult way as a kid. And the repercussions that come as a result of that. And how do you land with God being sovereign in control, yet we're responsible, and that person who is the perpetrator is responsible for that sin against you? Well, you have to see in Scripture that God hates sin. He despises sin. He hates what happens to you. It's opposite of, of his character, completely opposite of who he is. He hates it, he saw it, and he will judge it. That's the truth from Scripture. But God is sovereign, and he can take a horrible, awful, tragic thing that happened, and he can turn it for his glory in his way of being God. Take, take the story of Joseph for a second. What happened to Joseph? His brothers were jealous of him. They took him. They sold him into slavery. We read the story, blah, blah, blah. You know, yeah, we know what happened. But think about it. Think about the pain, the suffering, the hurt, the abandonment that he had in all those moments. Yet what did God do? He redeemed Joseph's situation for the deliverance of the people of Israel. So God being God is sovereign. Yet you and I bear responsibility completely for our sin. And so when you're faced with those situations, and I, I don't say this lightly because some of you are, are, are really suffering today. You're, you're truly, truly suffering maybe from something that happened years ago. And so I don't say this flippantly or lightly, but God can take your situation and make something beautiful out of it for his kingdom purposes. But as long as we have this vision that life is about me and it's my story, and the Bible is basically, how can I get God on my team to do what I want? Then it's impossible to see God in that light. But when we see that the Bible is the narrative of God, who he is, and he's redeeming a people for himself, and he's going to renew this world for himself, then we're able to say that, you know, even though it makes no sense and it hurts and, and, and it's awful and it's terrible, God, I trust that you're going to use this for your purposes and for your kingdom. I, you know, I thought of this and I added it in my notes later, so I'm going to put my glasses on and read from Acts chapter 2, verse 22 and 23. I think this, is, this says it so well about Jesus and the cross. Men of Israel, this is Peter preaching, men of Israel, hear these words. Jesus of Nazareth, a man attested to you by God 
with mighty works and wonders and signs that God did through him in your midst, as you yourself know, listen to this, this Jesus delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God, you crucified and killed by the hands of lawless men. Do you see that? Whose plan was it? It was God's plan from the beginning. It was God's plan, but he says, but you are responsible for your actions. You're responsible for your actions. So God is sovereign, and God hates sin. And his kingdom is his kingdom rule. But at this juncture in God's plan that he has not eradicated sin. He has not done away with sin. He's redeeming a people to himself. He's not fully manifested himself in his glory as he will in the coming kingdom. And here's what we need to remember. We as sinners left to ourselves without the restraining grace of God that's given to us, we would just free, sin freely. We, we would do whatever was, as, as it says in Genesis, whatever was, seems right in our own eyes. See, that's our default. God doesn't cause you to do something. He just turns you over to yourself, right? He just turns you over to your nature, which is me, 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 me. And as Paul Tripp pointed out in the video, the DNA of sin is selfishness, right? Me, 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 me. And so when we see our lives running that direction, that's where we cry out for the grace of God because it's only his grace can take a heart that's so wicked and so sinful and redeem it for his good and his purposes. And so, because of this depravity, apart from God's grace, we only act in rebellion. We only act in a way that's sinful, and we're responsible for that sin. So it's a great mystery, but I think it's one that's important to pause and talk about today, because many of you need that truth, because you're going to be questioning the goodness of God at some point in your life. You're going to be saying, God, I don't, I don't get it. If you're so great and you're in charge why did that have to happen to me? Why did that happen to my family? And God says, I'm good. Trust me, I'm good. I'm a good father. And I'm going to turn this and use it for my kingdom purposes. So the kingdom of God, God's reign and Christ's lordship. And just like us, the disciples needed to see God's kingdom. They needed to see things that were different from the kingdoms of this earth that are accomplished through fighting and, and, and shedding blood, but it's so counter to what the Messiah came to do, Jesus came to do. He came to shed his blood to gain victory. Victory is by the king shedding his blood, not by shedding the blood of the enemies. And so his disciples needed this transfiguration moment. They needed to see this before they were tasked with go and tell the entire world the gospel. And so, verse 2, I believe, is the answer to verse 1. Some people would say it was the coming of the Holy Spirit. Some people would say it's the, the temple. I think you connect it, the temple being destroyed. I think, it, I think it, it just falls right here. Six days later, that Jesus took Peter, James, and John and led them up to a high mountain by themselves, and he was transfigured before them. And his clothes became radiant, intensely white, and no one on earth, that no one on earth could bleach them. So he was transfigured. He was changed right before them. And what is this? His true essence, his true nature, this hidden glory that he emptied himself of when he came to earth, all of a sudden it's on full display for his three disciples. 
they see him in his glory, in his majesty, in his greatness. And so for, for just a brief moment, Jesus' true identity is allowed to shine forth. And, and, and he's seen in all his glory and all his majesty. And this is the Jesus that we'll see in Revelation. If you read the book of Revelation, and as you get to the end and you see Jesus returning in power and glory and might, this is the Jesus they see all of a sudden, not the Jesus who looked like the ordinary guy, but the conquering king, the one who's going to come and rule. The one that we'll sing about in our last song today, Is He Worthy? Is He Worthy? I love that song. It says, do you feel the world is broken? And there's a response after it. We do, right? We, we definitely feel the world is broken. Anybody feel like the world's broken? That your marriage doesn't work easy, your, your parenting doesn't work easy, tragedy happens, car wrecks, situations, cancers, these things. The world is broken. Is the world groaning? Absolutely, it's groaning. Don't you wish you could see all made new, the lyrics say? You betcha. Does our God intend to dwell again among us? He does. He does. It's not just wishful thinking. It's reality based upon God's world that God's word that his kingdom's going to come in fullness and Jesus will come and redeem us and manifest himself fully to us. And the disciples get a taste of that here. And not just Jesus, but Elijah and Moses just happen to show up and they start talking with Jesus. What an amazing scene, right? Moses, if you're not familiar with scripture, He's like the chief representative of the law, the law that the Israelites had. If you read the first five books of the Bible, you'll see all these laws that were given. And then Elijah, he's the representative of all the prophets. And, And both of these guys were great deliverers. And together they represent the prophetic traditions that point to Jesus, the Messiah. And how amazing that Moses comes and, he, and he's, he's there. And I came across this really awesome chart that kind of shows you a comparison. Go to the next slide. And a comparison between, if you can read that from back in the back, between Moses when he went up to Mount Sinai and Jesus in this transfiguration and just the parallels and how that, this, that Moses and, and Sinai was a, a foreshadowing, pointing to a, a picture of the Messiah Jesus and the events we'll see here. But trust me, these events that were happening here On this mountain were no Mount Sinai. They were so much greater than what happened in in Mount Sinai. This wasn't about more laws being given to the people. This is about God coming and taking our place and taking on our sin and redeeming us for his purposes. And so all of this pointed to a greater Moses. It pointed to a greater exodus, a greater deliverance, a greater salvation. Moses pointed to something so much greater than himself. I love what Daniel Aiken says. He says, this is gospel mountain, not law mountain. Here the law of God and the grace of God converge in the one who is God incarnate and the fulfillment of all the Old Testament promises. Look at him and believe the gospel. Look at him and believe the gospel. It's all come together in this moment. And we learn from one of the other Gospels that this conversation that's happening between Moses, Elijah, and Jesus, it's about his death. He's talking about his death. But can you imagine Peter, James, and John as they're sitting there and their hearts are just pounding outside, out of their chest? I mean, this is amazing. They're terrified. They're taking it in. 
that Jesus, here he is, he, he's meeting with these people and their religion represented so much, but Jesus is showing them he's so much more. And he's fulfilled the law. He's fulfilled the sacrificial system. He fulfilled every messianic prophecy. Everything toward which the religion and history had been moving now came to the point where Jesus revealed his glory, his greatness. What an amazing sight. And not to miss this amazing part, the fact that Moses had been dead for 1,400 years and Elijah about 900 years. And we would hope that this happened, that the last thing we would want to do would be to express our opinion on the matter, right? Just say something about it, make a comment. Because what could we add to this amazing moment? Moses, Elijah, and Jesus in all of his glory. But, of course, we know from learning about Peter over the last months, he wouldn't let that happen, right? And so he speaks up and he, and he says to Jesus, Rabbi, it is good that we are here. It's, it's great that you brought us along because we're going to make three tents, one for each of you. We're going to set up these tents, make these tents. Now, look, there's a ton of speculation on what Peter was talking about here. Maybe he just was not even thinking straight at all, but there were lots of pictures here, the Shekinah glory of God in the Old Testament on the tabernacle. Maybe he thought about tabernacling, the Feast of Booths, the Feast of the Tabernacles, where they, where they celebrate the deliverance from Egypt, and maybe he's thinking in that regard, we need to build these tents. Maybe he's just wanting to think, you know, maybe he's thinking, man, we don't need to go die. We don't need the cross. We got Moses and Elijah here, man. We got like dream team. We can just take over, right? We'll leave this mountain and there will be no dying. We don't need to do that. We don't know exactly what he was thinking. Maybe he just wanted to prolong this amazing moment. But the thing that he needed to realize was, this moment was going to be prolonged long after Moses and Elijah left because Jesus is so much greater than Moses and Elijah. Jesus was the glory of God, and they still will not fully get this until after the resurrection. And so he let these men see physically with their eyes. He let them see something so special because I think they needed it for the road ahead, what was going to happen. And then whatever the motivation for Peter's desires to build these shelters, um, we know he's scared to death. Look at verse six, 6 says, and he did not know what to say for they were terrified. Why did he say anything, right? I mean, he's one of those external processes, verbal processors, right? He's just got to say something in the moment, right? You know, people like that. And he had to have a comment. But they were, they were terrified. And think, look at verse 7. And this cloud overshadowed them. And a voice came out of the cloud, all right? That's reminiscent of Jesus' baptism, right? But Luke tells us that the, the three disciples, they were fearful as they entered the cloud. And Matthew tells us they fell on their faces and were greatly af afraid. This glory cloud of the presence of God overshadowed them. It like created this shroud around Jesus and Moses and Elijah and the disciples. In verse 7, the voice came and said, this is my beloved son, Listen to him. So this is my beloved son. If you remember that from, from his baptism, that's what the voice of God from heaven said. But now it says, listen to him. Maybe he's talking to Peter. Right? Be quiet, Peter. Just listen to Jesus. But I think it's so much bigger than that. He's saying to the disciples, this is the word made flesh. This is everything before time and creation. Revealed in this glory of Jesus Christ. 
more than what he appears. He is God with us, Emmanuel. Verse 8, and suddenly they looked around and, and no longer saw anyone there but Jesus. So Moses and Elijah, gone, the, the, the glory, the, the cloud, gone. And then they start coming down the mountain. And he tells them, as we see often, Jesus says, don't tell anyone about this until the Son of Man has risen from the dead. And so they kept this to themselves. But they question what this rising from the dead might mean. They still don't get it. What does rising from the dead mean? And maybe they ask Jesus about that. Would Jesus tell us more about this rising from the dead? Or maybe they just speculated among themselves. But they did ask Jesus a question about Elijah. Seeing Elijah, they said, why do the scribes, the teachers, why do they say that Elijah must come first? They're confused. You see, Scripture predicted that the coming of Elijah and what would happen, there would be peace. But Jesus says, there's going to be conflict. And they're looking for somebody to come to resolve conflict, to bring peace. But Jesus says, no, that's not the case. And then verse 12 and 13, he says, Elijah does come first, and he restores everything. And what does that mean, Elijah does come first? All right, this gets a little bit into the prophecy, but hang with me. We've, we've worked through the book of Malachi before where where John the Baptist was predicted, another Elijah, in the, in the manner of Elijah, would come as a forerunner to Jesus, and that was John the Baptist. And what did they do to John the Baptist? They heard his message, and then they killed him. And look what he says in verse 13. Jesus says, but I tell you that Elijah has come. He did come in the person of John the Baptist, and they did to him whatever they pleased as it was written of him. As it was written of him. So he's telling him, yes, Elijah came. And they killed him. And guess what? They're going to kill me as well. They're going to kill me. I'm going to die. In verse 12, the second part of verse 12. And how then is it written about the Son of Man? Jesus how, how is it written about me? That I must suffer many things and be treated with contempt. So he points to Scripture and he says, The same Scriptures that pointed the coming of Elijah prior to the day of the Lord also were the same scriptures that pointed to this Messiah who would suffer and die. Verses like Psalm 16, 22, Psalm, or Psalm 16, I'm sorry, Psalm 22, Psalm 110, Elijah 52, Elijah 53. Read the whole Old Testament in light of Genesis 3:15, and you see this unfolding that happens, this prophecy that happens, the Son of Man will suffer. He'll be treated with contempt, he'll be killed, but he will rise from the dead. So Jesus was telling them, John fulfilled the assignment given to him by God. And Jesus was saying, and I am going to do the same thing. I've been given this assignment by God. John was given this assignment by God. And God is going to give us the strength to fulfill that. And disciples, my inner circle here, Peter, James, and John, rough days are ahead for you as well. Like I just said, suffering, taking up your cross, denying yourself, it's going to come. We're on the way to Jerusalem. We're on the way to the cross. You need to know that your assignment holds the same fate. And you need to see my glory. You need to see my greatness to sustain you 
in the days ahead. Jesus knew his assignment would be nearly unbearable. We know that in the Garden of Gethsemane, he cried and sweat like drops of blood coming off of him. And he cried out to the Father, if there's any way, let this cup, let this, this, this task, this assignment pass from me. But I know there's no other way, God. Not your will, not my will, but yours be done. So let's bring that home. Jesus was intentionally crafting his disciples for the work of the kingdom and the road ahead, which was going to be what? It's going to be difficult. There was going to be suffering. There was going to be denial. So who are we to think as his disciples that we won't face the same things? As I talked a lot about last week, and we won't do that again, but persecution is real in many parts of the world today. It's a reality. As Just like you're sitting here today, it's a reality. Probably not going to be in our lifetime, maybe, some of the younger ones. Who knows? But here's the thing. Whatever Jesus calls you to do, he gives you the grace to do that. But he also desires to reveal his glory, to reveal his greatness. And oftentimes that's revealed in the most tangible ways and real ways through the struggles and the difficulties and the suffering that we deal with. And look, I don't sit here and say this because I like it. I don't think there's anything wrong with hating suffering. And we don't go and, and seek it out. We hate sin. We hate the, the brokenness of this world. But at the same time, we see this as opportunities to become more like Jesus and to see his glory in a greater way. If you need strength for your road, for your journey ahead, the difficulty that takes you beyond your limits of your wisdom, beyond your ability to sustain yourself, what do you do? You see the glory of Jesus. And look, that's a very churchy thing. Okay, see the glory of Jesus, all right? What does that mean? It means seeking God with all your heart. It means making him primary. Above all the things that are competing for your heart, Jesus is preeminent. He's number one. He's first. And it's, it's worshiping him out of a heart that not just says, I checked off, I did my Bible reading today, but it's, it's slowing down, allowing the Spirit just to speak to you through the word bring you to a proper understanding of God and his character and his goodness and his grace and seeing him every day more and more the way that he truly is. And it doesn't happen in one day or two days or two weeks or two years. It's definitely a lifelong process. But if we will do what Jesus told his disciples, deny ourselves, take up our cross, follow, what can a man give in exchange for his soul. The soul is eternal. The stuff that we love is temporary. Let's put up our treasures in heaven, not on earth. And that's worship. Worship's not a moment where you raise your hand, although that's part of it. Worship is a heart that says, God, you're my number one. My life is about you and for you. 
and I'm going to struggle every day of my life with me wanting to be first because I'm in this broken body, but God, please come and redeem this world. Please come, Jesus, soon. Make all things right. Thank you for redeeming me. Thank you for the salvation that you've given me and help me to declare that in worship to those I'm around. That, my friend, will change your perspective on your suffering. Day by day by day by day, on my knees, humbly before God, in submission to him, looking and say, God, more of you in me, more of you, show yourself to me. And God says, right here, seek me, know my word, dig out my character, mine out the truths and the qualities, and you'll see me for who I am. And the Holy Spirit will take this and bring it real into your life. That's what Jesus wants us to be about. The road ahead. I'm giving you what you need. I'm giving you the grace. Follow the assignment. God, we thank you for this amazing book of Mark. And thank you for the truths that we find there. God, I pray for those uh, in here who just find themselves skeptical, skeptical today. They just can't really imagine this ever happened because they've never experienced anything like this. God, I pray that your, your Holy Spirit will give them the faith to see. And God, give them the, the wisdom to look at the other option, which is that nothing makes sense. Nothing has purpose. And see how much faith is involved in that and which one really is the easiest to believe. That you exist and you reward those who seek you or that we're just here and we landed by accident and we're just going to go back to the dirt and be done forever. God, that just, we can't live that way because there's no truth in that. And God, I pray you awaken the sinner's heart today to your greatness and that you're worthy. And God, for the Christian who's battling full out against the world, the flesh, and the devil against the, the things that are trying to discourage and the suffering that's in their life and the, the pain and the hurt that has been brought upon them and how they're questioning your goodness and your grace. God, today may they see you in a special way and just feel you in a special way. And God, touch them at the moment, at the, at the crisis they're at and help them to experience the grace like never before and move from this place eager to see you redeem their tragedy for your glory, and for the good of others. In Jesus' name we pray.